Hey everyone, and welcome back to Big Mad True Crime, where we get big mad over true crime. I'm your host, Heather Ashley, and today's case is basically how not to get away with murder. You've had enough small talk with your quarantine for the last week, so let's save you the misery and dive right in. It was a normal day in Virginia Beach on May 5th of 2014. The weather wasn't being as much of a wishy-washy bitch, and fishermen were starting to get back out on the water and do their thing, whether it was drinking at 4 a.m. and coming home complaining about how no fish were biting, or genuinely heading out, catching some croaker, and then lying to their friends about how big they were. Either way, the fishermen were out and they were looking for a good time, but this case was about to take a massive dump on their plants. On the morning of May 5th, 2004, an unsuspecting fisherman was out on his boat near the Chesapeake Bay Bridge Tunnel, which is basically this massive highway bridge that winds up going super deep underwater. It's honestly terrifying. One crack and you're all fucked. I used to drive it every time I went to and from my in-laws before they moved here. Anyways, the fisherman is out minding his own business by the bridge when he notices a green suitcase floating in the water. Obviously, he's never watched Dateline because he decides to drive over to it and pull it up into his boat. When he opened it, he found something wrapped in black garbage bags and duct tape. Naturally, he had to know what was in there, so he pulled the plastic and duct tape apart and found that there was a third layer, a hospital blanket. Seriously, I'm watching this case in my head and yelling at him to stop like this is a football game or something. But he doesn't stop. When he unraveled the hospital blanket, he discovered a severed human head with a bullet hole through the center. We can assume he never went fishing again. It only gets worse, though. Just six days later, on May 11th, some students were out bird watching on Virginia Beach when they, too, noticed that a green suitcase has washed up ashore. Much like the fishermen, they decide to open it and see what's inside. We are a curious people. Inside the suitcase, they find a torso, arms still connected with no head and no lower body, with a gunshot wound to the chest. We can assume that's the last time they ever went to the beach or really anywhere with surprise luggage. But when there's two, there's three, and five days after that, not far from where the first fisherman found his bag of nightmares, a second fisherman stumbles across a third green suitcase. Again, he opened it. And in that suitcase was the rest of the dismembered man. The bottom half of his body had been stuffed into the suitcase and floating in the bay for at least a week and a half. The authorities take all three bags of remains to the Norfolk Medical Examiner's Office in hopes to identify him through fingerprints or DNA, but that was a no-go. They had the full anatomy of an adult male over six feet tall, weighing roughly 220 pounds, but had absolutely no idea who he was, and he didn't match a single one of their missing persons reports. On May 21st, frustrated with no new information, police have a sketch artist come in and draw up what they believe the victim would have looked like prior to his death and length of time in the water, and then the photo is released to the public. It takes almost no time for a woman to call in and be like, hey, the guy in the sketch is 100% my husband's friend, Billy. And Billy it was. Our John Doe was positively identified as William McGuire of Woodbridge, New Jersey. That's why no one knew who he was. He wasn't missing from Virginia. 
He was missing from New Jersey. But that begs the question, how did three suitcases containing his body parts wind up so close to one another if he lived over 300 miles away? They make contact with William's wife, Melanie, to let them know that they'd found her husband and he's deceased. Clearly, she's devastated. Well, according to her friends. See, William had never been reported missing. Police waste no time in getting to the bottom of whatever happened to Billy and interview Melanie on June 2nd. She tells them that in the early morning hours of April 29th, her and William got into a violent argument where for the first time in their marriage, he got physical. She says that she and one of her children, not both because they had two, hid in the bathroom after Billy slapped her in the face and shoved a dryer sheet in her mouth. Weirdest fight ever? She says that she heard him rumbling through the house as he packed his things, and as he was walking out the front door of their Edison, New Jersey rental home, Melanie says he told her that they'd never see him again, and that was the last time that she ever heard from him. She continues gabbing her flapper and offers up that William gambled in Atlantic City a lot, so they might be able to find him or his car there. Hold up, lady. They already found him, but why are you telling them where they might find his car? Anyways, they talk about the luggage he was found in, and she says that she doesn't recognize it. They continue to interview her and ask her whether or not Billy had an easy pass because they noticed some charges along the Atlantic City Parkway on May 2nd and 18th. Mind you, the 18th is a full 13 days after his body parts started popping up all over Virginia Beach. I do believe this is when her oh shit meter began to go off. The next day, Melanie called Easy Pass to dispute the charges the detective mentioned, saying that they were incorrect, but Easy Pass was like, nah, girl, we have footage of your car rolling through the toll, so we'll keep the change. But let's make this weird. Her own stepfather called Easy Pass after she did to try and dispute the exact same charges on her account. It wasn't even his. She's in her 30s. What the fuck does her stepdad have to do with any of this? And why does he think that he can get them to change their mind? And more so, why the fuck does he care? If I called my dad complaining that the toll company wouldn't take off some charges, he would literally ask whether I'm capable of wiping my own ass or if I needed help with that too. He certainly wouldn't be putting his cape on to play Captain save and calling them again on my behalf to make the same argument I just did. Nonetheless, authorities head down to Atlantic City and just like Melanie had suggested they might, they find Billy's car parked at the Flamingo Motel. Fancy. Inside his car, they find his cell phone in the passenger seat along with pamphlets for hotels in Virginia Beach and Atlantic City, both where his body was found and where his car was found. In the trunk, they find his Blackberry that he used for work, and in his glove compartment, they find a syringe and a bottle of chloral hydrate, which is a serious sedative. What the fuck meter is going way off? I mean, besides the obvious, who keeps one cell phone in the passenger seat and another in the trunk, and neither of them on themselves? This is when shit hits the fan, but kind of on the DL. Search warrants are made for Melanie and Billy's rental home, and Melanie's parents' house, but not much of anything is reported in the media. From the outside looking in, this case looks cold as fuck. 
But that's until a year later on June 2nd of 2005 when Melly drops her sons off at daycare and goes to start her normal daily routine but is stopped by police and taken into custody and charged with the first degree murder and dismemberment of her 39-year-old husband of five years, William McGuire. People are shook. Where did all this come from? How did we get from E to Z? And what evidence did they have? She was hit with a $750,000 bail, but somehow managed to bond out. She's sitting on some serious charges, but is roaming the streets like a free-ass woman. So if you ever thought the sex offender registry was terrifying, think about the registries that don't exist. Lock your fucking doors. Not long after those charges, though, the attorney general receives a mysterious four-page letter claiming to be from the mob, and copies of this letter are sent to the media and the police. This letter reportedly tells the AG that Melanie is innocent, that the innocent wife of a murdered man is being charged with a crime they committed. Yes, because the mob is all about making sure the innocent don't go to prison. In an effort to prove the letter's validity, they include some information that wasn't released to the public, information that only the killer would know. The first bit is the fact that the only clothing Billy was found wearing in those suitcases were purple boxer briefs. The second piece of information they give is basically a correction to false media reports, saying that the media kept acting like Billy's arms were cut off, but that wasn't the case. And surface value, you might initially be like, okay, so whoever wrote this was clearly involved. But when you think a little bit deeper, why would you murder someone, cut off their legs, but keep their boxers on them? I'll tell you, it's because you have some kind of deep-rooted, ingrained care for this victim, even if you murdered and dismembered them, and you don't want their privates exposed to the strangers who find his body. The mob wouldn't give a single shit about that, but a wife might. And then you get to this whole, his arms weren't cut off argument, and all I'm hearing here is, stop making this sound worse than it is, I didn't cut his arms off. Whoever wrote this letter 100% killed William and genuinely feels like there's some kind of argument that it's not as bad as it could be. I mean, they could have cut off his arms, but they didn't, you guys. Jeez. The police are honestly thrown for a loop for a hot second and genuinely consider what the letter is saying, but not for long. And when that doesn't seem to work, the AG and the others get another letter. But this time, it's insinuating that Billy's sister is his murderer. They get this letter from a return address to Weikart Realty on Weikart Realty letterhead claiming to be someone who works there alongside Billy's sister. They claim to have found the following items in her garbage can at work and sent them in in this package as evidence because who goes to the police anymore? In the package, they include Billy's wedding ring, meaning someone took it off and kept it. Who would do that? The mob? Doubt it unless they're going to sell it for a hundred whole dollars, but a wife trying to say her husband had left her certainly might. A bracelet of Billy's, Ultramax bullets, an empty Ultramax ammunition box, this has to be a huge garbage can, a key to Billy's car, the one that was found parked at the Flamingo Motel, a key to Billy's lockbox in his and Melanie's surprise storage unit, rubber gloves, some prescription meds, weed, they literally mailed weed to the attorney general, old bed sheets, and some note paper with Billy's sister's handwriting on it. 
This attorney general has to be wondering why in the fuck, out of all the cases that come through that office, not only has the mob tried to fight for the innocence of Billy's wife, but now a random co-worker is trying to say Billy's sister is the one who killed him. But only after going through her work garbage that just so happened to have jewelry, two sets of keys, and some weed in it. Everybody calling bullshit, say aye. Four months after Melanie is charged with murder, she's also charged with perjury and... And for hindering apprehension for writing those letters to the attorney general's office. Police believe, for whatever reason, we don't know yet, that Melanie is behind both of the letters sent to the attorney general's office. Her bail amount is increased to $2.1 million, and her pattern holds strong, and the praying mantis of New Jersey is released on bond again. Lord help us all. Almost an entire year passes and nothing extraordinary happens. The case hasn't gone to trial. No more charges are pressed. But Melanie gets a new defense team. And not just any defense team. She hires Joseph Tacopina, a celebrity attorney. He's the equivalent of hiring Jose Baez. Tacopina is no joke. He's represented A-Rod, Meek Mill, J-Freaking-Z, and Michael Jackson, and now a lowly nurse from New Jersey. If you're wondering where in the free hell this girl is getting all this money, let me tell you a story. Some previous patients of Melanie's who just couldn't believe she was being charged with murder got together and raised $180,000 and hired Takapina for her. If I ever get charged with murder, I fully expect y'all to do this for me. Okay, thanks. Another five months go by with nothing, no news, no new charges, but then... Almost two full years after Billy's murder, Melanie McGuire goes to trial. The trial for the murder of Billy McGuire began in March of 2007, and I'll be damned if it wasn't one hell of a ride. Hold on tight for the evidence show of a lifetime. One of the first witnesses to testify was that detective who interviewed her in June after notifying her of Billy's death. In that interview, Melanie said she didn't recognize the luggage that Billy was found in and that they didn't own any matching sets. And in her defense, they didn't find any in her home. But I mean, she had vacated the hell out of that. During their investigation, they discovered that William and Melanie had a storage unit, something she had previously failed to mention to detectives. In that storage unit, they found the other pieces of the luggage set left over from the three that were found in the Chesapeake Bay that contained the pieces of her husband's body. You'll notice that I mentioned she vacated her house. On April 28th, Melanie and Billy had closed on their dream home, their $500,000 dream home, and that closing is the last time anyone ever saw Billy alive. 
That evening at 5.24 p.m., Billy called their gas company to have everything transferred over to their new house. At 5.44, he called a friend and talked to them about how excited he was about their move. And when he got off the phone with them, he called a second friend at 5.59 p.m. and had a few-minute conversation about the same thing. Billy was super social and always talking to his friends and family, always answered the phone, and when he couldn't, he called back as soon as he could. And if you didn't answer, he would, without fail always leave a message. Remember, this is 2004 before texting was a big thing. I got my first cell phone around this time and text used to cost fucking 25 cents a piece. Shit was expensive. That's why Blackberries were the thing because everyone would spend all day emailing their asses off. Anywho, at 6.10 p.m. that night, the seller of the house called Billy, but he didn't answer, which was weird because he'd always picked up when they called. But even more peculiar, he also never called them back. I mean, you're about to move into what used to be their house. You might want to see what's up. But nope, after that 5.59 call to his friend, no one ever heard Billy's voice again either. All signs point to Billy being murdered on April 28th of 2004. The next topic they go over in the trial is Melanie's Google history. I would like to thank Jesus himself for this magical tool. I would also like to apologize to my phone for the things that it has seen, but let's continue. They present Google searches starting from April 4th of 2004 and going through the 26th, just two days before Billy was last seen or heard from. I'm going to break them apart for you guys, so let's go down the list. The first Google search they find is for undetectable poisoned. I Googled this and the first thing that happens is Google is a cynical asshole and explains to you that undetectable poisons are poisons that are undetectable. Thank you for spelling that out to me in big bold letters. You get a ton of responses, most of them giving you a list of the top 10 or top 7 least likely detected poisons, but they almost always include that there's pretty much no such thing. You can be tested for damn near anything. The problem people run into is knowing what to test for. Next, she Googles state gun laws. Okay, poisons and guns, we can see where this is going, but let's ride this horse all the way into town. She goes back to poison, and this time she Googles instant poison, then heads back to the whole gun idea and Googles gun laws in Pennsylvania. Somebody couldn't make up their mind. New Jersey has the second toughest gun laws of any state in the country, so naturally it's time to outsource. In New Jersey, you have to wait at least seven days before you can purchase a handgun, but in Pennsylvania, it's just 48 hours. The searches continue and go on with toxic insulin levels, fatal insulin levels, fatal digoxin levels. Digoxin is a heart failure medication, and frankly, the toxicities tend to be pretty minor in the grand scheme of things. So I don't know where this came from, but I'm thinking someone might have mentioned it at work that day, and she had a brief light bulb moment. And when that light bulb quickly burned out, she was back to Googling instant undetectable poison, like she was going to kill him with the devil's blood or something, and he was just going to drop out. For a second, it looks like she had a change of heart and Googled how to commit suicide, which I mean, whatever, but it didn't last long because right after that, she Googled how to commit murder. She hops back on the gun bandwagon, but this time it looks like she's learned something. She Googles how to purchase hunting rifles in New Jersey. Hunting rifles are generally a lot easier to get than handguns, so she either did some research or talked to someone about it. But the gun thing gets put back on the shelf and she's back to Googling pesticides as poison, insulin as poison, morphine poisoning, how to find chloroform, insulin shock, neuromuscular blocking agents, literally looking at how to paralyze a person, sedatives, tranquilizers, barbiturates, nembutal, which is a sedative, I'm sure you're shocked. 
But next, she Googles pharmacy, which, I mean, she's a nurse, so she knows what a pharmacy is. So I'm guessing she was looking for one near her, and probably so that she could go and get the next thing she Googled, chloral hydrate, the exact substance they found along with a syringe in the glove compartment of Billy's car. She Googles chloral hydrate side effects and does one more search for Walgreens, and that's it for her. Her Google rampage is over. It's a little suspicious that of all the Googles and research for poisons, that the last substance she ever researched is the same one found in her dead husband's vehicle, which she essentially led police to on her own. But the road to fucked has just begun. On the 26th, the same day as her last Google search, she drove down to John's Gun and Tackle in Pennsylvania and purchased a 38 caliber pistol and a box of 38 caliber bullets. She purchased them using her Pennsylvania driver's license that had her aunt's Pennsylvania address on it. The next day, the 27th, one single day before Billy disappeared, she went to work and allegedly got a hold of her boyfriend's prescription pad. Oh, I'm sorry. Did I forget to yell plot twist? Yes, Melanie had been having a two-year-long affair with her married supervisor, a doctor at the practice she worked at. His prescription pad was used to issue a prescription for, wait for it, chloral hydrate under a patient's name who had just recently come in. The patient testified that she had never been given a prescription for chloral hydrate, nor had she ever filled any prescriptions through the Walgreens pharmacy that it was filled at just two miles from Melanie's home. Oh, and the patient's phone number on the prescription was off by one digit. Nothing like making careless mistakes when it comes to murder. The justice system depends on it. Now, for those of you still reeling from the affair news, the doctor did not write this prescription. A handwriting analyst confirmed that the signature on the prescription had in fact been forged, though they couldn't confirm nor rule out that Melanie had been the one to do it. The defense took a stab at this and said that Billy was using chloral hydrate to mask his alleged steroid use. Okay, so we're going to admit that she forged the prescription from her boyfriend's script pad for her husband and under the name of a former patient because husbands and boyfriends always band together, right? Her doctor boyfriend testifies that they've been together for the past two years, which included her last pregnancy with Billy's baby, where she gave the good doctor a blowjob in the office while she was 38 weeks pregnant. Cool. Doctor boyfriend says the two both had plans to divorce their spouses and start a life together and was shocked when Melanie called him on the 28th, saying that her and Billy had just closed on a $500,000 house. But I mean, this couldn't have been the first shocking phone call, though, because one of them had to have been, hey, I'm pregnant with another one of my husband's babies. It's cool. I'll still blow you in the office, though. The doctor said that at some point, Melanie told him Billy threatened to take the kids if she ever filed for divorce, which is interesting considering her claim that he had left her and the kids and said that they'd never see him again. One of Melanie's longtime friends and former nursing classmates testified that she had contacted him a while back saying that Billy had been drinking more and she was afraid of him because he had a gun. This led to them talking about how she should get a gun for protection and how to get one. However, when family and friends asked Melanie why she bought that gun in Pennsylvania just two days before her husband disappeared, she told them that Billy had asked her to buy it for personal protection for their new house, saying that he couldn't buy one because of a previous crime. Billy's only previous criminal charge was in Virginia, and it was a nonviolent one. 
So which is it? Is he a violent man with a drinking and gambling problem who's got a gun and you're terrified? Or is he your loving husband you just bought a house with and purchased a gun for? The gun that Melanie bought was never recovered because who doesn't misplace their guns all the time? Continuing on, law enforcement actually got a warrant allowing them to do wiretaps on Melanie, which is almost unheard of. Those warrants are insanely hard to get, but here we are. In one recorded conversation with her doctor boyfriend, he asks her where the gun is and she tells him that she doesn't know. What mom of two preschool-aged boys doesn't know where her gun is? That former classmate of hers that she had spoken with about buying a gun to protect herself from Billy allowed the police to record one of their conversations. And when he asks where Billy's gun is, she says that it's probably in his lockbox in their storage unit. The police found that lockbox. When they opened it, they found seven 48 caliber figments of Melanie's imagination. They found no guns. In that lockbox, Billy kept fucking batteries. On April 29th, Melanie claims to have had this violent fight with Billy where he packed his shit and stormed out of the house. That afternoon, she went to the courthouse to file a restraining order, but decided it was just too busy and that she'd go back the next day. So without finishing the paperwork, she takes it home. Someone then uses Billy's Blackberry to email his supervisors that he wouldn't be coming into work that day because he was sick. But whoever used his Blackberry used an outdated email address for one of his supervisors, something that Billy wouldn't have done because he knew who the fuck he worked with and how to get into contact with them. But it certainly bought the killer some time before anyone realized that something was up. That night, Melanie checks herself into a hotel room at the Red Roof Inn in Edison, New Jersey, the same county that she has a perfectly good house in, and pays for it in cash. But she doesn't stay long after checking in. Instead, she hopped in her car and drove herself all the way down to Atlantic City, a one hour and 40 minute drive, three hours and 20 minute round trip. Unbeknownst to her, the Flamingo Motel in Atlantic City where Billy's car was found had rolling CCTV footage and it caught her at 12.40 a.m. parking Billy's car exactly where it would be later found by police. The following day, back in Edison, she finished those papers for the restraining order and testified before a judge about the alleged dryer sheet fiasco and said that she had no idea where Billy might be and on the paperwork checked that he owned no guns. Zero of them. So we're just rolling in lies like a pig in shit at this point. When police confront her with this footage and ask why she said she didn't know where Billy might be, she told them that she had actually found his car parked at the Trump Taj Mahal Casino, a mile and a half away, you know, within walking distance, and moved his car in an effort to get back at him. Ooh, good one. So you drove three and a half hours to look for the car of a guy you're terrified enough of to file a restraining order against, and you decide you want to fuck with him, but then tell a judge that you have no clue where he might be, oh, and not to worry because he doesn't own a gun. This is a new level of dumb, and it deserves a title. To add insult to dummery here, during the time Melanie was in Atlantic City, Billy's phone was used to call a friend of his, but only long enough for it to connect and register on his phone records. His friend was totally unaware of this call because it never came through on his end and said that if Billy ever called him and wasn't able to get in touch, he always left a message. But alas, there was no message left. Oh, and that phone was left in the front passenger seat of his car from then on out. 
This entire time, Melanie's doctor boyfriend is like, where you at, bro? And she's all, oh, I went to find my missing husband. And when I found his car, I was soups tired and caught a cab to take me home, which would have been around a $250 cab ride. Oh, but wait. She said she slept in the cab, so she immediately decided to take another cab ride back to Atlantic City to get her car back, you know, all in the middle of the night and $500 later. Naturally, police contacted the cab companies that serviced the areas, and not a single soul took anyone from Atlantic City to Edison that night. Late on May 1st, Melanie's stepfather joins her on another middle-of-the-night drive down to Atlantic City to quote-unquote check on Billy's car. I'm wondering why this couldn't be done during the day and why her stepfather needed to come, but I'm also starting to see why dear old stepdad didn't want that easy pass charge to exist. Police have always thought that Melanie had an accomplice and almost everyone felt like it had to be her doctor boyfriend, but he had an alibi. He was working really long hours during the time Billy went missing and he had overnight guests staying at his house. If she had an accomplice, I think everyone's looking in the wrong direction. And isn't it ironic that the next call out of Billy's cell phone was at 1.10 a.m. in the wee hours of May 2nd when Melanie and her stepdad just so happened to be checking on his car. The call was placed to his and Melanie's home phone just 16 minutes after they were seen going through that toll, you know, the charge she wanted removed. I challenge anyone to tell me a story that will make me believe that her stepfather didn't know who made that call and exactly what was going on. I'd also like to know that there are a lot of tolls that Melanie's car did not register going through. Why? Because she was paying them in cash, even though she had an easy pass. The only two tolls that detected her did so because she chose a lane that was easy pass and exact change only. They detected her because she's a fucking idiot and it's amazing. Once Melanie left Atlantic City again, she went back to her hotel room at the Red Roof Inn, which she had been staying at for days now. Again, why stay in a hotel when you have a perfectly good home to live in? Unless there's a dead body in it. On May 3rd, Melanie met with her parents to drop off her boys on a Monday and then drove back home. Because who doesn't have their parents watch their kids on random weekdays after taking middle-of-the-night trips to Atlantic City together? Just two days later, on May 5th, the first suitcase containing Billy's body parts would surface near the Chesapeake Bay Bridge Tunnel in Virginia. And all that back-and-forth chaos stopped. She just resumed her normal life. Melanie started to get rid of all of her shit from the rental house. She sold the entertainment center to a co-worker who came to pick it up from her house after Billy went missing, and the co-worker told detectives that Melanie's bathroom smelled like a morgue, and not like dead bodies, but like an intense mixture of heavy-duty chemicals. Next, evidence is introduced to the jury that search warrants were served on both Melanie's and her parents' homes. Authorities tore Melanie's house apart, but it had been cleaned like the Pope was coming to visit. That includes repainting the walls. Who repaints the walls of a home they don't plan to live in anymore? They took apart drains, light sockets, everything, and they found not a single trace of blood evidence anywhere. Which is mind-blowing since Billy was not only shot and dismembered, but he was completely drained of his entire blood volume. Billy was over 6 feet tall and 220 pounds. He would have had more than a gallon and a half of blood in him, but where did it go? 
I mean, my daughter stubbed her toe today and it bled like a head wound. My son was living his best quarantine life playing his Nintendo Switch when he got a random nosebleed. It's been an oddly bloody day in this house. Anyways, my point is that if you luminaled my house right now, you'd see tiny bloody footprints and drops of blood from a nosebleed. But Melanie and Billy's house was pristine, which was an advantage to her defense team. I mean, Billy either wasn't killed or dismembered there, or their defendant is missing her calling in crime scene cleanup. But all hope is not lost in linking the murder to their house. The medical examiner found a green patch of fabric stuck to the bullet lodged inside of Billy's chest, which means it would have had to have traveled through this green fabric before entering Billy's body. The throw pillows on the couch in Billy and Melanie's rental home were green. The defense testified that the fibers didn't match the green velvet throw pillows they presented as having once been on her couch, but a friend mentioned that those velvet pillows weren't the only green pillows they kept on that couch. Speaking of the couch, it was never found. By the time police notified Melanie of her husband's death, the couch was gone. Melanie was a small girl and Billy was a big man. If she wanted to kill him, she'd need to sedate him first. And chloral hydrate would come in real handy for that. Especially if he drank it and passed out on the couch. She could then easily use her newly purchased 38 caliber handgun to shoot him in the head and use those nearby green throw pillows as a silencer and shield for any blowback or spatter from the wounds. She definitely wouldn't want her kids or neighbors to hear any suspicious gunshots that would really cramp your murder vibe. But if Billy was shot and killed on that couch, it would be full of blood and riddled with bullet holes, and so would those throw pillows. You'd certainly want them to disappear. It's really convenient that they were never found, much like the murder weapon. But let's move on to the search warrant for Melanie's parents' house. Police would have needed probable cause to believe that it was somehow connected to the murder to get that warrant, which is enough to gain my attention. At her parents' house, they find one of her scrub shirts from work, a casino comp card with Billy's name on it, along with almost $30,000 in cash. What do you know? Billy was considered a high roller at the Trump Taj Mahal in Atlantic City, gambling ninety-seven thousand dollars the year before and making an almost thirty thousand dollar profit now being a high roller and having a comp card means that when he gambles he stays at the casinos faux free they want their high rollers comfortable full of money and full of booze so those pamphlets for hotels in atlantic city and virginia that they found in his passenger seat parked a mile and a half from the taj mahal casino are nothing he would have ever needed Atlantic City and Virginia are both places we know that his killer traveled to, though. Speaking of Billy's car, they found one more thing. Microscopic skin particles, which doesn't sound damning when you first hear about it. Everyone sheds skin. But the medical examiner testified that the skin found on the floorboard of his car would not have come from normal shedding. The skin that was found was from much deeper within the tissue. He says it would have had to have come from some kind of disease or trauma and says that the wound the skin came from would have caused significant bleeding, but there was no evidence of that in the car whatsoever. The medical examiner concludes that it was most likely transferred to the floorboards from the shoes that his killer was wearing when they dismembered his body. But the court moves on to the next topic, that letter sent to the attorney general's office trying to implicate Billy's sister in his murder. 
They tracked the package down to the specific FedEx office it was shipped from and find the card it was paid with. It was paid for using an American Express gift card. Not suspicious at all. Who doesn't use money to buy money before using it to ship a package containing a dead man's jewelry and some drugs? They trace the American Express gift card back to a local pharmacy where they catch a woman on CCTV matching Melanie's description purchasing one just before it was sent out. Naturally, Billy's sister is distraught that she's even being brought into this, but Melanie has 10 fingers and she's going to point every single one of them. What her defense team didn't anticipate was their client being the fucking Hansel and Gretel of evidentiary breadcrumbs. The return address on the FedEx package allegedly sent from one of Billy's sister's co-workers was the other Wycart Realty location, not the one his sister actually worked at. Certainly someone who worked there would know which fucking office they spent eight hours of their day at. Melanie got the patient's phone number wrong on the forged prescription for chloral hydrate. She emailed the wrong email to let Billy's supervisor know he wasn't coming in on the 29th, and she wrote the wrong return address on the letter she sent trying to frame her sister-in-law. So much stupid. More evidence is presented, like how the dye streaking on the black trash bags Billy's body parts were wrapped in matched the ones at their rental home and the ones she used to get rid of the rest of Billy's stuff in, and how they found a 10-inch hair matching Melanie's stuck to the duct tape that was wrapped around the garbage bags. Oh! Oh! And that blanket Billy's severed head was wrapped in matched the exact same blankets they use at the medical office Melanie worked at. Homegirl was fucked. But the defense team took one last stab at the it was someone else theory and suggested that her own siblings did it to frame her in an effort to get back at her for complicating the sale of their late mother's estate, citing that her brother and sister had made a list of ways to get back at her, one of which said set her up. However, the list also contained tell her we no longer believe she was molested as a child, which is fucked up. But again, how many people are we going to try and pin this on? The mob was a huge bust. The sister-in-law was the biggest shit show of a frame job I've ever seen. And now you're on to your own brother and sister. But the defense team is there to defend. And when this is what you're working with, you point the finger at the cast of Sesame Street and hope it works. The courts finally hear closing arguments and the jury is released to deliberate. In fact, they deliberate for 13 and a half hours. It said that during breaks throughout the trial, Melanie could be seen laughing and joking with her friends. But when she got the news that the jury had reached their verdict, homegirl lost her shit. Like full-on Farrah Abraham, Kim Kardashian crying. And rightfully so. They found her guilty of first-degree murder and sentenced her to life in prison with a mandatory minimum of 85% of that before she could be eligible for parole. Now, if you ask me, life in prison should mean fucking life in prison, but whatever. This means that she'll be chilling in jail until at least 2073 when she'll be a wrinkly-ass 100 years old. Over the years, Melanie had a website claiming she was innocent. She had shows made about her trial where they deemed her the suitcase killer, and a lot of people felt like her case wasn't a slam dunk, which frankly confirms my theory that one-hour episodes about any case are going to gloss over damn near everything. Melanie even made one last-ditch effort for her innocence and filed for an appeal saying that her $180,000 gifted celebrity counsel wasn't efficient. Clearly, that was denied. Melanie will sit and she will rot in prison until the day she dies. 
For all photos and maps pertaining to this episode, check out her highlight at the top of my Instagram at the Heather Ashley. And for anyone interested who has a lot of time on their hands, Court TV filmed this entire trial, and I'm going to link it in her stories for anyone who wants to give it a look-see. Murderpedia also has an amazing compilation of publications about this case, so I'll be sure to link that for you guys too. Be sure to stay tuned to the end of this episode for the blooper reel. Be sure to join me tonight at 9 p.m. Eastern for Crime Talk Live, where you go live with me and we talk about today's case. I'll be bringing you a brand new episode a week from today, and I cannot wait. But until then, we out. Why is my nose, like, not working? <sighs> oh, I hate why can't I fucking talk? <laughs> why can't I fucking talk? There's only one rental home. <sighs> oh, you bitch. Fringer branch. <laughs> Let me fix this necklace. Jingle, 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 jingle. For the kiki. She tells him, rumbling, why rumbling? I'm going to let this loud ass plane fucking travel over our house. Fucking Corona gadget. Gadget. Corona castle. That's what a plane is. So fucking loud. I'm going to do this again. Why? I can't fucking talk or read. (laughs) Fucking. This is being a bitch, and we're gonna say that again. Why does this sound like fucking stupid as shit? Okay, I get a burp. It's just stuck. In- and heard from. <laughs> the fuck was that? No. <sighs> from busy.